This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Time of the week where we turn our attention to the United States. Yeah, lots uh, coming to our attention this week. COVID-19 hospitalizations for one in the mm. US have mm. surpassed the record set in January last year. Yeah, uh, Citigroup also becoming the first major Wall Street bank to impose a strict COVID-19 vaccine mandate. Get a shot or face termination. Mm, something that's been a point of discussion, not yeah. just in the US, but in other parts of the world as well. And we'll also be looking at whether we'll finally see a reciprocal commitment between the US and Russia. Yeah, let's uh, get some analysis. Nirmal Ghosh, U.S. Bureau Chief for the Straits Times on the line with us. Nirmal, good morning. Let's uh, start off with those uh, COVID-19 hospitalizations. So it beat the record set in January of last year and all this because of Omicron. Uh, let's talk about whether or not we're seeing a peak of uh, this variant where the U.S. Uh, COVID-19 cases are concerned. Uh, any plans to counter the strain in uh, on the hospital systems, especially with the rising issue of staffing shortages? Good morning. Yes, and the hospitalization rate for children has really shot up. Today we heard that 40 New York hospitals have or will have to stop elective surgeries due to low bed capacity. And by the way, an interesting fact is that roughly half of the patients currently in New York City hospitals who are positive for COVID-19 were initially admitted for non-COVID reasons. Statewide, about 42% of patients who are positive were admitted for separate reasons. So a lot of people are going to hospitals for other reasons and then discover they have the virus. And yes, it is likely nearing the peak. Several epidemiologists and modelers are saying this will peak around mid or third week of January this month and then likely go down possibly even in a steep decline. Not all states are going to peak at the same time, though, because they are all at different stages of this pandemic. New York is expected to peak next week, around January 21, according to projections that I saw. As for the situation now, they have called out National Guard medical teams to help in some states. Ten states so far, I believe, have something like 13,000 National Guard teams deployed in hospitals and other medical facilities, including vaccination sites. And local authorities and organizations are in action. New York Health and Hospitals, for example, is sending out mobile units, six mobile units across New York City to offer free COVID-19 tests and vaccines to homeless people. So we are seeing a range of responses, but everyone is still short of home test kits. Here in D.C., for example, it is still impossible to get a home test kit at a pharmacy. Now, Nirmal, still on COVID-19 and Citigroup staff in the U.S. who have not been vaccinated by January the 14th will be placed on unpaid leave and they'll be fired at the end of the month unless they are granted an exemption. Uh, this makes it actually the first Wall Street institution to follow through with a strict vaccine mandate. What ultimately pushed them to take this step? And can we expect other financial institutions or even major U.S. companies to follow suit? This has been a dilemma for Wall Street firms and for many others as well, of course. New York City put out a sweeping vaccine mandate. This was one of the final acts of the two-term mayor, Bill de Blasio, before he relinquished office at the end of last year. He set a December 27 deadline for virtually all private sector businesses, and that is roughly 184,000 businesses employing hundreds of thousands, to require workers to show proof that they have received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. 
fines for non-compliance start at $1,000. That, of course, pushes all businesses in that direction. That was the key factor in the Citigroup decision, and others may follow. J.P. Morgan Chase, which is the biggest bank in the States, has not imposed it yet. But it did say at the end of last year that government mandates would make it difficult or impossible to continue to employ unvaccinated staff. But there are lawsuits across the country challenging vaccine mandates, and there is one in New York City which contends that the city's attempt to control the coronavirus pandemic deprives tens of thousands of businesses from pursuing their livelihoods. That has been filed by a realty firm. We will have to watch how all these lawsuits go. This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. And now, back to our podcast episode. Okay, Nirmal, next issue uh, comes from White House Indo-Pacific Coordinator Kurt Campbell, who recently said that the U.S. would push for a more comprehensive approach in its Asian engagements in the coming year amid its continuing rivalry with China. So apart from the diplomatic and military engagement, why are they seeing the need to step up economic ties? And how much of an influence is this engagement going to have on the policy toward China? It comes in response to calls from the region itself for more economic engagement to balance the sort of investment that China has been doing in the course of its Belt and Road Initiative, the BRI. The current administration has upped the diplomatic game. Top officials have visited the region. It has upped the security game. President Biden convened the first in-person summit of the Quad and is sprang the AUKUS security arrangement with Australia and the UK. So those aspects have been receiving attention and that has been noted in the region, which again welcomes continued and deepening US engagement. But many analysts have been wondering if there is an economic strategy and they want the US to up that game as well to balance China. As we know, there have been cases of countries, Sri Lanka is one example, ending up quite heavily indebted to Chinese investors. So the U.S. is going to come up with an economic policy document on the Indo-Pacific quite soon. And we can probably expect that delinking supply chains from China will be part of it. Now, on a separate issue, Nirmal, U.S. House candidate Shelley Luther is facing strong criticism over her views, calling for Chinese students to be banned from Texas universities. Why is she making such bold statements at this time? To what degree will this actually drive Asian, anti-Asian hate crimes in the country upwards? Well, as you said, she is just a candidate at the moment. She owns a hairdressing salon in Dallas, which she had refused to close in violation of lockdown orders. And she was arrested and detained for a few days. And that got her into the news. So she tweeted, Chinese students should be banned from attending all Texas universities. No more communists. The tweet has since been deleted. But she has doubled down on the communism angle and implied that all Chinese students are future members of the Communist Party of China. Look, these kind of statements work in the context of our time. They sow fear and uncertainty. Today, being a China hawk is in fashion. I don't think it will have a significant impact as a driver of anti-Chinese hate or broader anti-Asian or anti-immigrant hate, but it is one more incremental drop of incitement, so it definitely won't help reduce it. 
Uh, final question, Nirmal. The United States and its allies preparing to discuss with Russia about the Ukraine, uh, possibility of each side restricting military exercises, missile deployments in the region as well. What are we looking at in terms of a reciprocal commitment between both parties? And I mean, are they ever going to agree to some kind of a diplomatic solution with regard to Ukraine? Yes, well, Ukraine is in the unfortunate position, as we know, of being a buffer state between Russia and NATO, and it has a substantial Russian-speaking population. And there is little doubt that Russia's President Vladimir Putin wants to absorb Ukraine. Now, his point of view is he does not want to lose Ukraine to NATO, because that would mean NATO could have missiles right there on Russia's borders. President Putin is demanding an end to NATO expansion, and he wants to promise that Ukraine will never join the alliance. But that amounts to a major challenge, even potentially a dismantling of the security architecture of Europe built after the Soviet Union's collapse. So this is already driving a wedge between the U.S. and its NATO allies. Putin is succeeding in that respect. Now, at this meeting, if both sides agree to pull back, to reduce exercises and so forth, yes, that could buy time. But the Europeans are not really in favor of drawing anything down. So it is a very tangled and possibly intractable problem. A diplomatic solution is always possible. That's why diplomacy exists. But this is also about issues like how much will the U.S. do to help Ukraine? They have promised significant consequences. What are those consequences? Will they be enough to really hurt Vladimir Putin? And if not, what does it say about U.S. credibility? Now, some of the measures will include cutting off Russia's largest financial institutions from global transactions, imposing an embargo on American-made or or American-designed technology, and arming insurgents in Ukraine who would fight against any Russian military occupation. But right now, it is impossible to tell which way these talks are going to go. Thanks very much, Nirmal. Nirmal Ghosh there, U.S. Bureau Chief at The Straits Times. We'll catch up with him again next week. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.